Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 129, Never Throw Dice in Glass Buildings. Don't throw dice in glass buildings. <laughs> what is that from? I don't know the song. <laughs> Anyways... Hello, everybody, and welcome back. This is Albert. And Julius. Hello, all. How are you doing, Julius? I'm doing quite well. Slight issues with a little bit of power and a different recording studio today, but we're going to make it. Mm-hmm. We're going to make it work. Um, yeah, all right. I, I kind of have a feeling today's show may be a little bit shorter than normal, so we're going to have to fill it with stuff or talk um, a little slower. I think that probably we're going to be having a long, boring session about talking about history, so I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> we're going to do a history segment on the Sagrada Familia and Antonio Gaudi, the architect. But uh, we're not there yet. Um, I haven't been playing too much lately, but May is over, and now I'm going to have more time again. May is always a hard month. Um, so I am looking forward to playing games. I did play One Deck Dungeon the other day. I got that and played that, and that was fun. And I also played Shahrazad. Which is neat too. Have you yeah, have you played One Deck Dungeon? I have played One Deck Dungeon. I've not played Jaharazad. Okay. I remember when One Deck Dungeon was on Kickstarter and I considered backing it and there was another um roguelike on Kickstarter at the same time. I said, No, I'm gonna back the other one. It just it feels better. And now that I've played both, I kinda think I maybe I picked the wrong one. I, sh- I should have gone with One Deck Dungeon. I- I've only played a couple times One Deck Dungeon. I don't own a copy of it. Um but you know, it was, it was nice. It was fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who don't know, One Deck Dungeon is basically a dice rolling game where you are going through a dungeon one time, uh, a deck one time, and each time you'll pull out a card and you'll select one of the card options, and then you have to roll your dice, which are your different uh, attributes. So you'll have a strength one, an agility one, and the different challenges from the cards require different values of dice, and you'll assign the dice differently. Um, roll well, and I guess you do well, or you have to figure out, usually you're having to figure out which ones are better to try and re-roll and go for luck, and that's the sort of decision that you're making. Yep, exactly. And it's a neat little game, and it's pretty quick, and it's for, I think, one to two players out of the box? I believe so. Yep. And and if you don't know about it, uh, well, shame on you, because it's been talked about a lot lately on BGG and the One Player Guild and stuff, and, and all the other Solitaire podcasts, I think, have been mentioning it. Yeah, I remember there was a lot of mention of it when, when some other people started talking about the fact that it's an all-girl game, too. Oh, that's right. That's the one where all the characters are female. Yes. That's right. And that was apparently a bit of a hoopla when that came out, too, when that happened. Yeah, it was. Deservedly so, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's And, you know, it's fine one way or the other. It doesn't really matter. So, do we have any news? Anything more newsworthy than that one we have been playing? Just a couple things, really. One, there's an article by that cowboy guy. Who is that cowboy guy? He's the designer of the uh, Infection Humanity's Last Game, which was published by Victory Point Games, and is also available as an app now. Um, it's a solitaire game, really neat game. And he wrote an article on AIs for solo games, how to design AIs for solo games. And he kind of talks about different styles of solo games and different ways you could make an AI for those styles of games. It's an interesting article. We'll, we'll include a link to it in the notes. Why does that cowboy guy not go by his real name? 
Because I don't remember his real name. Do you happen to know his name? Oh, no. I, I was I just asking why it is that... But that is his handle, and, and he goes by that, too. So I think that's that's fair, but I will find it. Okay, so that cowboy guy, who also goes by the name of John Gibson. Good guy, that John Gibson. So the only other piece of news I have right now is Asmode, the, the gaming conglomerate, has now announced that they're going to start using one distributor only. I think that's a bit unfortunate. Um, you know, th- there's less choices. I think it makes prices less competitive because of that. If you only have one place to go to buy something, you're going to pay whatever they're charging. I mean, theoretically, it'll help them reduce their costs because it's one less distributor that they have to work with. Right, so there's less overhead and paperwork and all that. The competition for the prices comes with competition with other games. You're still going to have plenty of other people, Artipia, everyone else. They're going to be developing other games, and you have to remain competitive with everyone else's games. If Asmodee starts making games that are twice the cost of everyone else's, nobody's going to buy it. They're all going to prefer other people's. That is true, but I think what what ends up happening is probably the retail price stays the same, and the price to the to the retailers starts getting more more expensive, and then there's less choices for them. I think I, I, that's what I imagine. I don't. I guess I don't really know, and I don't do any kind of sales or anything, so I'm just making up stuff. I mean, I I have discussed this sort of stuff with my local with my local game store owner in the past. Although I haven't discussed this particular one about them moving to just one distributor, but I mean, I just can't imagine that makes much of a difference. My local retailer uses multiple distributors anyway. His availability will change based on which one's coming in, but he uses multiple distributors anyway. So this just means that every time he wants to get specifically, you know, the the newest release from. Arkham Horror, the card game, it's going to come in just under this one distributor. So it may take another day or something for it to come in, but it'll come in. Mm-hmm. That's true. And what percentage of games are being published by Asmodee now? I don't know what it is, but it's it's not... It's a very difficult thing to say because there's tons of games out there. That's true. You know, the here's... And maybe this is just... And many of them garbage. You're going to say this is weird, but here's one thing that makes me sad about the whole idea of using distributors like this. I remember when it used to be that the store would deal directly with the the publishers and get the games directly from publishers and not really go through distributors. And so if your store never happened to talk to one publisher or another one, they just didn't carry those games. It was kind of neat when you traveled to a different town and you would find... Oh, but you are so dating yourself. Oh, and that's fine. You'd find games at other cities that you wouldn't have found at your own store. And it was a real treat and a real... It was finding like a treasure. It's like, oh, check this out. I've, I've heard of this game. I've never seen it. And here it is. Um... Because everybody's going through distributors and everybody's using the same distributors, all the same games are available. So there's less of that going on. It still happens because especially the the less common games, a retailer may or may not choose to pick certain ones up. Then they install windshields on cars. (sighs) That's another thing I could go on about. You know, back in the old days, you used to be able to drive and feel the wind in your face. And sure, you get a bug in your teeth sometimes, but that was okay. Albert... It, I don't really think there were many, many stores that were working without distributors. I mean, you may have a couple games out there that don't work with distributors. Like, for example, I reviewed v-, v Commandos a while ago. V Commandos never went into distribution. But because it never went into distribution, the only way you can get it is on their website. Mm-hmm. So are you talking about before the advent of the internet? Not not quite that far back, but it, it, there is a time when distributors weren't as common for board gaming. I mean, I know they've existed forever for other businesses, but it seems like my friendly local game store would, for example, contact publishers directly, especially the smaller ones. 
and and just that happens a lot less now. Really, a small publisher, I think, if they want to get their games sold, you still get some of that, but it's you know not as much been primarily replaced by by Kickstarter and things like that. You have people who made two small print runs to bother putting it into big distribution. That's true, and now it happens through Kickstarter. And they publish the game on Kickstarter, and if you don't get it there, you're probably not going to find a copy later. Mm-hmm. So I think that all that, all of that really small print run stuff now just goes through Kickstarter. So that's the stuff that doesn't hit distribution. Mm-hmm. That's true. That is a fair point. Um, but it's still, you still lose that charm of going to a new town and finding that game store with the hidden gems. I yeah, you've still lost really that, but I still don't think it makes a difference awesome. about Asmodee using just one dis- one distributor. I just don't think it makes a difference, other than maybe reducing Asmodee's costs for the games. Yep. Well, only time will tell. I hope you're right. <laughs> Which I doubt is actually going to result. Like again, I think that Asmodee and FFG and and all those guys are trying very hard to keep the price of their board games relatively the same which requires having some games having less content. And I know we saw this sort of thing for, you know, comparing Lord of the Rings card game to Arkham Horror, that, for example, there's less cards, there's less stuff in the box. And that's because they kept at the same cost, the same price, rather, but in order to reduce their cost, they had less stuff in the box now because the stuff is now more expensive. Mm-hmm. Yep, and, and, then, and that's, that's just inflation in general, and that's right. You know, and I haven't paid close enough attention. I've heard people say that that after companies merged with Asmodee, the prices tended to go up, but I, I you know, I, I can't really comment on that. That's just hearsay from my point of view. I mean, I think um, that's also possibly just for things like Feast of Odin, which is just an expensive game. Could be. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to tell. So the other piece of Asmodee news is they have once again swallowed up a small publisher Rory Starcubes is now part of the Asmodee family, um, which is a big surprise to me. But and you know, again, I guess I'm not excited about the the merging of companies into bigger companies. So I think that's kind of sad because I really like Rory Starcubes. Rory Starcubes is not dying; they're not dying. Um, they have a new Kickstarter, even. They do have, and that's right. So let's talk about Kickstarters. They do have a new Rory Starcubes Kickstarter. And let's find. I'm just that. saying that um, even though even though they're coming together, I think that they're coming together means that Asmodee wants to make more of them. They want to keep it going further and reaching farther. Yep, that's true. I mean, that, that is one of the things they mentioned. Their 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 stuff becomes more available now because it is a little bit hard now to find story cubes. Well, I'd say you could go to Walgreens and find them there. Although I have to admit, I know that you're super excited about Story Cubes, but it's never something that really interested me. No. <laughs> um, and they're, they're neat because they're really, I think, useful, especially for solo role playing. Um, it's a great way when you're doing a solo RPG to come up with an unexpected tangent. You roll the dice and then use those images on the dice to, to figure out what happens next in your story. Uh, that That can be challenging, especially when the symbols are like, a dingo and a pot of gold, and you're doing some sort of space opera. No, <laughs> you, you get creative. The dingo maybe isn't a dingo. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's an alien race. But whatever, you, you got to now figure out how how it works. And so anyway, there is actually a new RPG out now based on Rory Story Cubes and designed. Um, and it was designed by John Fiore and Rory O'Connor of Rory Story Cubes. Um, John Fiore is actually the designer of the Nine Qs, which was a a solo system 
using Rory Store Cubes or any other randomizer for role-playing games. He actually ran a solitaire blog for a while. That was pretty interesting. Uh, unfortunately, that went away eventually. Um, so in this game, you're, you're building stories as a group, or if you're playing solo by yourself, by rolling the dice and together actually drawing pictures and putting them together on your board. And it's a dry erase sort of board. So you could redraw stuff. And it just uses a standard set of Rory Story Cubes. Though you could also... I don't know, there's probably like about 80 or 90 different dice. And this is supposed to be a full-on RPG? Um, it's an RPG in the cooperative storytelling vein. More like a fiasco, right? Where, where you play the game and it's a one-time session. You just, as a group, come up with a story together. Um, and this one, you're not necessarily making characters. You're just together building that story. But yeah, it is an RPG, basically. So is this RPG something you expect that you're going to be playing? Yes, I think so. I, I, I am backing it, and I may not be able to back it because it's in the UK, and it is solo playable. Some people have been playing solo because it is available to print and play, actually, I think. It doesn't have like a win condition or anything like that. No, right? it's not a, a win or lose sort of game. It's more of a just tell a story cooperatively and just make it to the end and see how the story ended. If, if you're familiar with the game Microscope, that one, you know, p- players are cooperatively building a, a timeline spanning epics or epochs or whatever. And no, there's no win or lose. It's just the point of building this huge timeline for a history of something that happened. And the same sort of idea. just For timeline? In, you're building it. Yes. Yeah, so you pick something like, um, I don't know, the starting place might be the 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 death of the last dragon and the end place of your game is going to be um, humans finally appeared on the earth. Or, or maybe, no, humans finally leave the planet. And now players start together building everything that happens in the middle, all the history. And that's what the game is about. It's really interesting. I don't know. I suppose it's just simply because, again, I'm sort of a sharing type person. But if I were doing such a thing, I would want to, I don't know, write up a report for it to to SGOYT or to you know keep the paper or something like that. But to just tell a story, but then you know it's just on dry erase and that's it. It's gone. I don't know. Yeah, I could see. I see what you mean. Because you didn't, you didn't win. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't win. And when you play the Rory Story Cube game here, this Untold, you actually have a, a whiteboard where you're drawing on, and so so you actually at the end you will have a picture story, I guess, and you could take a photograph of that and save that. But yeah, it, it is totally cooperative. There is no winner or loser. I think, not really. Um, I haven't followed the the how to play all the way to the end, so I'm not actually sure about that. But I, from the okay. from the style of it, that's what it seems like. It seems like that style of game. Um, and so this is... Oh, you know what? I'm sorry, but this actually ends in 16 hours from now. So probably when you're listening to this in a few days, because we're not publishing it for a few days, it's going to be over. Um, so it's really not much of a Kickstarter news. It, but, you know, we're, we're talking about Asmodee. But it's still definitely something that Albert is interested in. Yes, and I am interested in this. All right, so Albert, I think that's about it for the news. I think you had to, shall we start talking about Sagrada? Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. Before we talk about the game, I want to talk a little bit about the history of the the Sagrada Familia. Right, the game Sagrada is based (sighs) on a real church in, in Barcelona, Spain. Quick note from the editor, if you want to skip forward past the history discussion, skip forward to about 33 minutes into the podcast. More information in the show notes. Um, and it's a fascinating church. It, it is like no other building you're ever going to see, honestly. Um, 
And so the, the Sagrada Familia is actually a basilica, not a cathedral. And, and the designation has to do with what kind of priest is, is working from there. Or is, gosh, and I'm sorry, I don't know the right terms. But which, who is there? Um, and the level prison. Eight pages of notes, and he still doesn't know the right terms. <laughs> and, and I'm Catholic, so I should know these things too, honestly. But I'm sorry. Um, so anyway, Antoni Gaudi was the architect. He was born in Catalonia, and his his full name is Antoni Gaudi y Cornet. He was born in 1852 and died in 1926. He was born to coppersmith, so it was not from a wealthy family at all. And he was actually a pretty sickly child, so he spent a lot of his time indoors, probably reading and things like that. Um, he is probably the best-known architect. Actually, no, he is the best-known architect of the Modernismo movement, um, which is primarily a Catalonian architectural movement or art, art movement. Very similar, if you're familiar with Art Nouveau, um, very similar styles. There's also something called Jugendstil in Germany and Liberty in, in Naples. And they're all architectural, artistic movements from the same time period that are very similar. And honestly, if you're an architectural neophyte and you look at buildings from the different movements, you would just say they're all Art Nouveau. Because you know, that, I think that's what's best known and they're all very similar. Um, anyway, modernism, modernismo and Art Nouveau and all these, I think a lot of the architectural design is focused around very decorated architecture. It's never very simple or plain. There's a lot of art and details in the in the work. Um, for example, even Sagrada Familia, high, high up where you aren't going to see anything, there's all sorts of detail built into the into the design. Um, it's just extremely fancy. It was definitely an architectural style for for the for the rich to to be able to afford somebody to build something and and decorate it this much. You would definitely need to have money um, because of the materials and because of the labor involved and all all that. Um, and like how much money? I think he had to be wealthy, <laughs> he, um, upper class for sure. Like, do you know how much one of these things actually cost? I I don't have numbers in cost, but it, you know, a, a working person is not going to be able to afford to to buy a building and decorate the entire outside with tiles, you know, small little pieces of tile. Sure, of course. Which would take a lot of manual labor to put together. You know, a a normal working class class person is going to afford a very simple building with a very simple facade and all that. Um. And and you know, it's not just the facades. When you look at Gaudi's architecture, the inside and outside is all just amazing to look at. So actually, he started working in Sagrada Familia in 1883. He was around 30 years old at the time. That's when he became the the chief architect. The prior architect uh, decided he didn't want to be involved in the job anymore. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Um, He was one of Gaudi's mentors, and he recommended Gaudi to take over. Um, Around the same time, maybe, you know, next couple years even the year before he did start doing other works that are also well known i'm going to list a couple here el capricho in 1882 so year before there's a famous dragon gate that he designed which is a very cool creepy looking gate of a it's a dragon's mouth as the gate opens the the dragon's mouth opens up uh super cool that was 1884 um he designed the gold town palace in 1886 is an amazing house um a lot of houses for bishops and uh, an, I think a maybe a nunnery or a convent, I'm not sure. Some wine cellars, Aguel Park, which is a very famous park in Madrid, in Barcelona, I'm sorry, they could go visit. That's still there. It was never completed, but it is there. A lot of Gaudi's work 
all, like I said, used ceramic tiles. A lot of stuff was decorated. Sometimes it'd be entire pieces of tiles. Sometimes you would take tiles and break them into pieces and put it together to, to form sort of a collage or something like that. Um, inside, things are very decorated. There is, I forget which building it is, there's a stairwell. The The banister of the stairwell actually looks like a spine. It's super cool, super creepy. Um, like I said, everything is decorated. And now all that stuff is the same place where the actual glass pieces from Sagrada are. Not, not necessarily. These these are a lot of his stuff is all in Barcelona, but the, the that staircase, for example, is a different building in Barcelona um, that he designed. But his styles, he liked to take things from nature, um, ideas from nature in the design. So, like a human spine is a natural thing. In Guell Park, there's sculptures of animals. The the way he designed arches was inspired by nature even the look of the Sagrada Familia it, it doesn't look like a building it looks like mounds so in, in a way it all I mean it all looks natural it looks man-made too obviously but but it is different um, when I look at it the, the words that come to mind are, are whimsical some of his architecture you'd swear it comes out straight out of a Dr. Seuss book um, it's inspired by nature like I said and it, I'd even call it Geigeresh and some Geiger is it yeah, Geiger, as in H.R. Geiger, H.R. Giger, I guess is the correct pronunciation. If you're familiar with his art, very creepy, very naturalist and technical looking art. More about Gaudi. One of his main uh, patrons, probably his main patron outside of the, the Catholic Church, was uh, Eusebe Guel. Eusebe Guel is important because he, he was a patron of Gaudi and, and sponsored a lot of his works, including some of his more famous and more elaborate works. So they became friends when uh, Guel was in Paris and saw an exhibit in the World's Fair that included Gaudi's work, and so he contacted Gaudi, and, and they became fast friends after that. Um, they were both very religious people, and I think that was a lot, a lot part of their friendship. And, and Guel paid for a lot of Gaudi's work, and so he kept him employed and, and designing stuff, including Guel Park, which was... Um, a park he was designing is sort of going to be a workers' community where he was going to design all the buildings and a park, and they would be able to live and all work there. And that was the plan. Unfortunately, it never got finished. Guel's family was a very influential and successful family, but at some point they came into financial trouble. I think because this is the late 1800s in the Industrial Revolution, and, and it was at the point where the economy collapsed in Barcelona, and so he lost a lot of his wealth. A lot of his money, I believe, was made from um, textiles. There, there was one interesting comment. One time, um, Gaudi mentioned to to Guelle, "You know, I think you and I are the only two that really like my designs." And Guelle replied, "You know, I don't like your work, but I do respect it." And I thought that was kind of funny. Um. So the Templo Expiatorio de la Sagrada Familia is the full name of the basilica. Um. I don't know what expiratorio is, but it's the Church of the Sacred Family. And and supposed to be about the family and uh, dedicated to the, the the family, I guess the idea of the family. It was originally started in 1882 by Francisco Paulo de Villar. He's the architect I mentioned. And in 83, almost immediately, Gaudi took over. Um, he completely redesigned the original architect's ideas. And he, he started from the ground up. His design style was basically 
design as you go and constantly redoing his work. So he would come up with plans and erase them and do other stuff. And nobody really knew what the, the final plans were other than models he had made here and there of parts of it and what notes he had. But it was all always changing. Um, and so in 1826, when he was heading to work, he was riding the, a, a trolley. Or maybe he was walking, actually. I think he walked a lot, if I remember correctly. He, he got hit by the trolley accidentally. The guy got off and, and saw this old bedraggled guy because God, he was always very frugal and you know didn't dress very fancy or anything. He thought it was just a bum, pushed him off to the curb and kept going. And because of that, Gaudi did not survive that accident. Um, when that happened, there was a huge funeral for him. All of Barcelona came to see him. I think there was, it was hundreds of thousands of people came to, to the funeral procession through the city. Um, and he was really, really mourned, you know, all over Spain, especially Catalonia um, at that time. The the work did keep going for a while, but then what happened was the the Spanish Revolution came along, and during that, there was a lot of damage to the building. And actually, not necessarily the building. You never expect the Spanish you Revolution. <laughs> you never do. The... Uh, there, there was destruction in the building. Mo- many of his plans and models got destroyed. So all these, all these models he had built, scale models t- to design the building from, were completely lost. And, and then because there was just not a lot of money at the time during the Spanish Revolution and then World War II later, um, work pretty much stopped for a while. Probably until the, I think it's the 1950s when it began again. Now all the work is, is basically paid for by donations. Um, so it has gone really slowly, you know, for, for these hundred years. I guess it's been being built for the last 150 years at this point. Um, or almost 150. The It's now almost at the point where it's almost actually finished. Um, it, it, they plan to finish it by 19, or I'm sorry, 2026. So just another nine or so years at this point. Um, if you go, the the outside is not complete, but there is an inside already. I was in Barcelona in 2000. At that point, there was no inside. You could take a tour of the church, but the the area where all the pews would be and all that was really just a work area. There was crates and boxes with parts and supplies and all that sort of stuff. I remember walking through there, and I took a picture of a, a black cat walking on some of the stuff. Um, it was open and up in the air and everything. You know, there was just open sky above you. So it was definitely far from being at that point. Uh, I don't know when they close it up, but it is now... A, a functional church inside, even if the outside is not complete. Um, it is a very, like I mentioned, it's a very unique building. If you see it, there are these really tall looking um, mounds almost, I guess is the way you describe it. it. That's what it looks like from far away. The The design is very unique. He actually, I don't know if he came up with it or how he figured it out from what I remember reading at one point some years ago is that he came up with the idea of building these arches um if you imagine the shape if you if you hold a string with two of your fingers you it's going to curve all the way down and then curve back up right and that sort of curvature that that the string takes is is a very strong shape um because gravity is just pushing everything in the right direction if you take that and flip it over upside down you now have an arch that's a very strong arch for a building structure and that's how he built there's actually when I was there there's actually models in the church I don't know if he made himself or the replicas of him, of all these strings being held together but with weights on them to, to build all these curves. And so you get these really tall curves 
and these really tall columns in the middle. And when you look inside, if you look on the internet, you see pictures of the buildings, and it looks like a forest because you got these tall arches that go straight up, these tall columns, with then curving out into arches. And it almost looks like you're looking up at trees with branches, with concrete branches going out at an angle. Again, very much inspired by nature. Um, it, it, so, so this form and the structure that he used with these arches, uh, I wrote down the name. I don't remember what it was exactly. I can't find it. It was something like a, it's a parabolic arch. And the name was, it was not exactly parabolic, but it was very close to that word. Um, so where was I? So, so you build these amazing, really tall buildings. Um, they, they're very open. And because the arches are able to support so much weight, you're able to make very large and more stained glass windows, more windows in your building. And so because of that, these windows are very famous now. And this whole game is based on these stained glass windows. Um, the colors that come into the church are just amazing when you look at the, the photos on the internet. It's definitely worth just looking at it. They they light up the the columns in these strange different colors. The A lot of people apparently don't like it. Some people think it's fantastic, some think it's horrible. It's something you're definitely going to have an opinion on because it's so different. There's a couple interesting facts, too, that I wrote down. The building, when it is finished, it will be the tallest church building in the world. Um, I think it was something... What was the number? I want to say it was like 700 meters or maybe 150 meters. But it is taller than the current tallest building by about like 10 meters. Uh, and also, because, because he was very religious and, and, and loved nature a lot, he apparently deliberately designed it to be about three meters shorter than the, the mountains around the area. And the tallest mountain by Barcelona is exactly three meters taller than the church. And he did this in, in deference to show that anything God makes is better than anything made by man. And again, if you go look on the internet and you see plans of the church, what it looked like when it's finished, it's going to have one tall arch column that is that doesn't exist today or a dome i'm sorry that it i think will about double the height of the building and on the top of that there's gonna be a huge cross and at some point there are plans at the sides of the cross we're gonna have lights coming out of them shining up the entire sky at night and apparently if i from what i've seen that they may no longer be gonna do that probably because electricity will be so expensive and probably because of the light pollution that causes um you know, like all his other stuff, the building's extremely decorative. When I was in Spain, we took a tour, and you get to go up some of the columns that were already built, and you're high up, higher than anything else in the city just about already. And even up at those details, when you look out to the sides of the other domes, there's all sorts of decoration and words written that you cannot see unless you're up that high. You could never see it from the ground because it's so small. Tons of detail. Really, really unique and amazing. Um... So there we go. That That's my history of Sagrada Familia and Gaudi as an architect. And maybe gives a little bit of context for the game, even though the game is nothing to do with Gaudi, just with the windows that came later. So most of everything you discussed has nothing to do with the game. <laughs> No, it's just a history of the church itself. <laughs> and how many of the windows that we're actually making are in the church? So some of the... So when you get when you play the game, you know, I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, right? There, there's cards that, that represent windows, and you're going to build those windows. Some of them are real windows. Most of them were were named by backers of the game or were voted on. But a few of them are real names. And I think as you read the window names, you can almost guess which are the real ones and which are the fake ones. But I don't know how many. All right, so, so did that put you to sleep? <laughs>
<laughs> yep. <laughs> Gosh, even the hot chocolate didn't keep you awake. Amazing. So, so nope. should we start talking about the game? Sure, let's actually review the game. start um so summary of the game this is this is a dice chucking game it is a dice drafting game um there's 10 rounds and each round you're going to roll a bunch of dice and people are going to draft from that pool of dice that you rolled and place them on your on your board to build a window that's basically what the game is um and the windows that you're putting them on have restrictions about where you can put dice. So some spots have specific numbers that can go in that. Some spots have specific colors that can go in it. And some spots are free to put them anywhere. As a general rule, you can also not put any number next to the same number or any color next to the same color. So those are all your restrictions when you're drafting That's dice. Right. And so you want to be drafting dice strategically in order to be able to fill out your whole window, but also so that you can make the arrangements in your window match various goals that are dealt out at the beginning of the game. So you may have one of the goals, which is have dice of the same color next diagonally next to each other, or maybe have one of each kind of die in a row or a column. Yep. So your goals will be changing on every game. And there's about a dozen or so different goal cards. Each game you're going to play with two or three of them. So I haven't seen all the go-karts yet in my games. There's also a secret go. Each player is going to get one. And the secret go is basically going to give you a color. And you're going to score points for each die of that color. Equal to the number of pips on that die. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that's basically what the game is about. What did you did you think about the rules? Well, I think with the rules, I mean, that's that's the summary of yeah, the yeah. game. Let's, let's talk about the rules yep. themselves. Did you have any problem learning the rules? Did you think that it was it was pretty simple? Oh, they were, they were real simple to follow. I mean, it's only a like four-page rulebook. It's super tiny, and it was simple and very clear. No trouble at all. Um, honestly, when I read when I first read the rules before I played the game, I was like, that's it? That's a game? That sounds dull. Um, and surprisingly, mm-hmm. there's a lot more game than you would think from when reading the rules. At least that's what I found. Um also, the, the solo rules are the last page, like the last half of the last page. And, you know, a lot of times when, when you get a game and the solo rules are at the end and it's, oh, it's like the full game, but here's a couple differences. That's usually annoying because the rules are so short here, I didn't find that at all an issue. Um, I found it. I think that with the solo rules, though, they introduce something different that actually um, the dice, the specific dice on your board make a difference in the solo rules. And I think we'll get back to this when we discuss the solo rules aspect. But the rules for me, I, I would have preferred a bit more clarification because things were acting slightly differently than the main game for the solo rules. And I didn't realize that just by reading the rules until I tried to read through the whole thing and realized I'm missing something. That may have just been my personal interaction with it. Hmm, okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember having an issue with that. I'm not sure what you're talking about yet. So I guess we'll see. Maybe I've, maybe I've still got that I rule mean, wrong then. The specific, the specific issue, the solo rules... When you're playing through the solo game, so normally you do a dice drafting. For the solo game, what you do is you do a dice drafting. There's four dice that come out. Normally it's two times the number of players Mm -hmm. plus one 
in each round. When you're doing solo, it's four dice. You will draft two of those into your board, and the other two can be used to play to tool cards. And each of the tool cards has either a color or a number on it. So if one of the other two dice that you used match the color or number on the tool card that you want to use, you can use one of those extra dice, the extra two, for that tool card and use it. And then it's once once used for the whole game, you may never ever use it again. The tool card. Yeah. Um, okay, so my, my understanding is a little bit different. And if you, you don't use the it... The dice you don't you, draft go onto the turn track... And then once you're in the turn track, right. then you could pull them off and, and put them in the tool card. So you couldn't really use those dice until no. at least the next turn. No. No. Which probably isn't really a big difference. I guess the the way it sounded... Your side. I mean, that actually makes a big difference for me for one of my critiques. So just a second, let me get the rules right. <laughs> okay. I think the way... Yeah, sure. The way you described it sounds harder. This game does not need to be harder. Yeah, the way I described it sounded harder. <laughs> Just a moment. Let me double check and make sure I have the rules right because I thought you can only use it for that round. But still, either way, things are slightly different because I didn't realize that you're actually going to be ending up most rounds with two dice going to the round tracker. Normally, during the regular game, just one die moves there. But for this, I'm using two. And the first time I play, I'm like, well, wait a second. Now there's there's two there? Do both of these go there? Does one of these get sat and wait to use on a tool card I, and I was a little bit confused until I just read through it I read through it and realized that yeah it's supposed to be two because for solo play you total all of the cards on the dice tra- on the round tracker and use all of those um, as your target score use all of those as your target score right and I'm reading the rules right here Albert uh, each game is played as normal in 10 rounds with a few small changes. Each round, pull four dice in the dice bag and roll them. Take two turns, choosing to draft and place a die and or use a tool card. Tool cards may be used only once by spending dice from the draft pool. Oh, man. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so I was playing it wrong. Boy, I wish I'd had my phone handy at that time. Albert, it's in the rules. Okay. Um... Well, that's interesting. That, that doesn't really change a whole lot. Though. Does I think that makes the game harder than the way I've been playing. I think it makes the game a ton harder, and I'll get back to that because that's actually a critique of mine. I think the game would have been better your way. You know, play it the other way. Try to see which ones you like better. I'll have to give yeah. that a shot. But anyway, we'll we'll talk about that when we get back to the solo section of the review. So anyway, yeah, apparently there's some issues with the rules. I think that it's it's clear i don't think there's much of an issue i understood it by the time i got through it i just think that it could have been a bit clearer to say hey things are quite different and you're going to be ending up with multiple cards with multiple dice on the turn tracker mm-hmm. yeah well you know but it's so, not that big a deal because once you've played the first time through and you figure it out yeah, yeah you've learned it and the game is so fast when you play solo you know it's 10 minutes it's it's gonna yeah, be faster than learning reading the rules for other games <laughs> I don't think it was quite 10 minutes, but yeah, I hear you saying. Maybe 10 minutes is a slight exaggeration, but it is a fast game. At least Solo is. Sure. Um, so how about the components? What did you think of the components? Um, really nice. The dice, this is this is a dice placement game, so it's really important to make sure that the dice don't get knocked. So in order to try and do that, they had inset boards um, required for this game to have the inset boards. Because otherwise, it's so even with the inset boards, I, I sometimes was knocking dice, but 
I just cannot imagine trying to do this game without the inset boards. It would just be it crazy. It would be. And, and, you know, that one of the, that is a drawback to the game, is those boards, sometimes it's hard to pick up the dice, and if you knock it and you change a number, it may be hard to put it back to the right number if you're not sure what it was. Um, and, and I found that frustrating about it. Sometimes sometimes you, you knock a die out and you know exactly what the number is because it's on a space that says it has to be a three. Well, that takes care of it. Or you might just remember what it was. But otherwise, yeah. a lot of times I'll knock it and make a best guess. Well, I mean, how often were you knocking the dice? And is that really something Actually, that could be so solved? So it doesn't happen often. It happens often enough that I, that I think it's a little bit of an issue. Um, there's a few tool cards that tell you to move a die on the board. And trying to pick it up sometimes... Unless you got small hands, there's not a ton of space between the dice. You may move a die that that's next to it accidentally and knock it. Oh, so I never. I mean, I haven't played a dice. whole ton of plays of it, but I haven't really seen it be a problem for okay. me about knocking it. I did it occasionally, but not really when I'm trying to move things. It was more like by accident I would bump it while I was reaching for a die or something yeah. else like that. Yeah, and that's what it is. When I'm reaching for a die, I'll knock another die. When I'm trying to. Move. But I don't think it happened very no. often. Uh, Not for me, And I've got fatter fingers or something. Or maybe I just got shaky hands. <laughs> I don't know. I think that it would happen much more often that stuff would get out of alignment yes. if it didn't have the yes. inset. Yes, oh, then it'd be even worse. But the, the, the actual board with the inset is fantastic. It's great quality. I love how the mm-hmm. the game brings a number of, of, uh, of stained glass windows, uh, boards that you play on. Probably, like, I think, like 20 of them or so. I'm not exactly sure how many. Maybe a dozen. And each turn, you're going to shuffle them and get each game. You're going to get two of them. Look at it. They're double-sided. There's a window on each side of it. And you're going to pick which of the four that you have you want to play. And you you slide that into your game board underneath the that section where the dice go. So that's pretty neat how that exactly. works. Yeah, I like how they do that. That's what I was trying to say. I really like how they, they made that design. That was a really good design or development choice to make it so that the cards actually slide into the inset board so it's different each game. It was very well mm-hmm. thought of. Yep, absolutely. The The dice are really nice. Once you finish the game and you have all your dice on your, on your board, I think they look really nice, all the colors and all that. It's just great. Um, they're smaller dice. They're, 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 I think they're probably 12 millimeter, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe 14. I believe so, yes. I wish the color on the dice were a bit more different. Um, and I know I keep calling the red orange mm-hmm. uh, just because that's what it looks like to me. But I keep – I mean the red die and the yellow die look a little bit too much alike really? for me. I think mine are very different. Yeah. Mine, the yellow is very yellow and the red's very red. My red is more orange. The the one of my dice has a, a blown up pip, <laughs> but that, other than that, it's fine. The other thing I I dislike is the um, the quality of the cards. There aren't many cards, but they're pretty thin cardstock. Um, and there's a little bit of shuffling at the beginning of the game, and I find it hard to do that to the point where I decide to sleeve them. Um, now you can't sleeve the the ones that go into your board, but I sleeved everything else. Did it still fit in the insert sleeved? I do not think I didn't try because I don't think it would fit into insert sleeved, and it's also a non-standard size. So even if you find a sleeve mm-hmm. that'll fit it well snugly, you're probably gonna have to cut the top off or something. So, so I don't bother. I hear you. Who I didn't knows? see it as too much yeah. of an issue for me. I do yet, wish the card talk was better though. It's not a huge issue. There's that. not tons of shuffling. It's just once at the beginning of the game and you're done. Um, I hear that. The it also brings a dice bag, nice sturdy dice bag. But I, 
not much else to say about that. But I think overall, I'm overall. I really think the components. Yes, are really I, well I agree. Done. Definitely well done. Great, great design. Great style. Great art. Everything. Everything just looks pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of gameplay, I enjoy the gameplay. I find it fast, simple game to play. Um, especially when you're playing solo. Solo games definitely go faster because you're not taking turns drafting with other people. What happens in a multiplayer game is, you know, we roll the dice. Everybody sits there and starts thinking about what they want to take, and then by pe- by the time the people in front of you take their dice, your choices now change because the ones you wanted are gone, and you're gonna have to probably rethink what your strategy is a little bit. So that that probably slowed down the game a little bit. Again, not much. Mm-hmm. It's ten turns. You you roll four dice. Each player drafts a die in player order, then in reverse order drafts a die again, and then the round's done. Um, I mean, in larger player counts, you're rolling a lot more than four. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So it'll be more than four. Most of my games have been solo, so I've been rolling four. And so in that, you know, draft a die, draft another die, and play some. Abnormally for me, I haven't actually played this game at all in higher player counts. I've only played it in the lower player counts this okay. time around. Yeah, I've played one and um, two Just only. because of what my availability has oh. been. And both so of I, those I don't fast. know very much about how it's been for the larger player counts, but I can sort of extrapolate and take a guess. Um but in this in the two player and the uh, in the two player game you know i'm really surprised by the depth of choices that you have about well do you want to try and push for this option or this option because there's a lot of restrictions in your board about where dice can go it can be very difficult to make a decision about which one of these dice you want to get and which one you want to hope for getting later and how you want to tie it all together you know it's it should be based on a lot of luck but i really felt like I was making good mm-hmm, decisions. Absolutely. And then and then tying into the tool cards, there's a set of tool cards in each game, usually about three. And you can use those to sort of manipulate your dice. When you're playing multiplayer, you have a certain number of tokens based on the difficulty of your of your um window board. And you can use those tokens to use the tools a limited number of times per game. And when you use those tools well in order to you know move around these and then draft this one and then you have a perfect board or you netted a couple points you know using those intelligently you feel intelligent or at least when i'm doing it i feel good about myself being able to see a good play that that nets me good points and mm-hmm. You know, when I feel like I'm yep. doing something positive, and, and the tool cards are interesting, my interactions are are adding points. It makes me feel good about the game. Yeah, yeah, you know? totally. The tool cards are interesting. They all they all somehow interact with the dice, or have you do something with the dice. It could be something from moving around dice on your window, or potentially re-rolling dice, trading a dice with some of the dice on the turn track that that were not drafted in earlier turns and, and ignored. Um, maybe flipping a die over to the opposite side before you play it maybe let you place a die without with ignoring the color restriction. So so they all do different stuff, but they all are going to affect how you get to place the dice. And like I said, yeah, it gives you lots of interesting choices. Something interesting I saw about the game, by the way, is that there's no hate drafting. Are you familiar with that term? Uh, I would disagree. <laughs> I would disagree. I know when I was playing with my son, I didn't do it, but I could have definitely chosen to take dice. You know, there's there's a point where... I have two dice to choose from. It doesn't matter to me which color I take. I want them both because they're number two. I know he needed the green one, so I'm going to take the green one. I understand what you're saying, and there's a level to that. 
But if you don't have anywhere you can put a die, for example, you can't just take a die and discard it to ensure nobody else can have it. Many other drafting games will actually let you just discard one of the ones that you have, like in Seven Wonders, for example. That's right. If if there's nothing there you want, you could just take and discard it for money or just discard it for no reason. Um, Just to take (laughs) things away. With this one, if you have nothing you can do, you have to let the other person have back all the options, you know, yep. when you're playing yep, multiplayer. That's right. So that's what I mean that there's no hate drafting. There's no purely hate drafting. You can't just take dice just to deny them from someone else. You have to make use of them or you cannot yeah, take Yeah, that's them. true, yeah. And if you don't take it, actually, if you can't take a die for whatever reason, you have an empty space at the end of the game, you're going to get negative points for those. Because you're going to end up drafting exactly enough dice to fill your window in the game. And if you... Yeah, it's only one point. One point per window. In the solitaire game, isn't it three points per window or per die or something like that? True. Yes, it is three points. True. Technically. We'll get back to that in a moment. We'll get back to that in a moment. I, I, I'm going to have a whole bunch to talk about when we start talking <laughs> about solo. But okay. in terms of the gameplay for this one, yes. I like it's it's a dice-based game that gives me good choices and good ability to to definitively influence the end of the game through the drafting so i really like how the game mm-hmm. plays all right uh, so next up we talk about theme um my comment there is what theme on <laughs> the, the theme Albert, is so please don't start talking about history yeah. again I can, i'll redo the history just listen real quick but none of that history comes through into in this game you know you don't get a sense of any of that the only reason you know you're building a stained glass is because it's a big stained glass picture above your your tableau where you're placing your dice Here's something humorous that happened for my first playthrough of the game. The cards and the, I think even the rules, all refer to the different numbers on the dice as the shade mm-hmm. on the dice. It's the, it's the, the shading, how, how dark the color is. And the whole time my wife was playing, and she still does this even as we're playing it more, she keeps thinking shade is color. So if, if one of the goals is have different shades of dice, she thinks it means different colors. Because shades is not numbers, shades is color. And so they tried to insert theme by making the numbers um, <laughs> mean something, yeah. Calling them shades, and it keeps it keeps throwing my wife. She's like, it's just it's not. <laughs> the shades are colors, and there's no different color. Oh, that's frustrating. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It, it's the theme doesn't matter. I'm I'm glad they chose that theme. As you probably noticed, I am I really like the the Sagrada Familia and Gaudi's an architect. I am fascinated by his work and what he's done. Um, I wish it showed through a little more in the game, and it doesn't, but it's fine because it is it is a really a fun game to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, I mean, the art helps it show through. Yes. I mean, at the end of it, you look like you've done something like build a window. All of the history for it, it just doesn't need all the history. I can call it stained glass window <laughs> instead of Sagrada. Yeah, you could. It I, could be modern art. And it... The the theme the theme of building a stained glass window sort of in the abstract comes through. I don't think the link the correlation between a tool card to what it's called like this is a brush. I don't see why it is making it all sense that I'm using a brush, but it's a brush. So I don't think there's any link between in the tool cards. But as long as you call it stained glass window and drop all the history of the Sagrada, it still looks like a stained glass yep, window. It, <laughs> it looks like he built a stained glass window with the translucent colored dice. And the the player board colors, and so they just called it Sagrada because that's a cool name. 
So I think the theme is still pretty strong. It still looks like you're doing stained glass windows. Yep, yeah, it does. And you know, the, the windows look really similar to the one in Sagrada Familia. If you go Google the the pictures of them, yeah, the style of it matches very well. Um, I assumed but it, that the tools are the types of tools that uh, stained glass workers use, but I don't know. I didn't. I didn't feel any theme there. Well, I mean, I assume that it is, but there's no real reason why this tool should relate to this use. Yeah. Is what I'm I saying. Agree. I agree. Um, so, but any, I think the theme is strong. Any final thoughts on the gameplay and that sort of stuff? What do, what do you think of the solo game? Well, I think we have to talk about the solo <laughs> rules. What's that? You're not getting through this. You're not getting through talking about the solo rules. Let's talk okay, about yes, the solo, solo rules. rules. Yes. I We've like already them. talked about the solo rules as written. The solo rules as written are different than the main multiplayer rules because there's no favor tokens. The tool cards that you have, you're limited to one use per game. And you may not have use of them each round. In order to use a tool card, you have to have rolled a very specific number or specific color. If you didn't roll that that round, you do not get use of the tool cards. Mm, Additionally, the end of the game scoring is based on the dice that you didn't draft. So if, for example, the goal that came out is have a low number dice on your board, so have pairs of ones and twos, you're shooting yourself on the foot every time you actually pursue the goal because you're putting fives and sixes up on the, on the target score. So you're making the target score really high to score two points for each pair of dice you have. But you're putting... 10 points towards your target yep. score. So, and that ends up making that scorecard pretty useless. And you can pretty much disregard all those points because you're going to end up wanting the higher dice if you can help it. Yeah. But then it's the whole time that, that you're, is, very, you're very torn between having to do two things at once. You, For example, you know, let's say that you want to have uh, different colored, different numbers across a row. Well, at one point in time, I'm going to have to give up a five in order to get five points. So I may as well, at one point in time, I just started playing the game. I ignored all of the goals, and I said, I'm going to take every single five and six I can get. <laughs> just, I'm going to take all the high the numbers I can get. Play with, basically. <laughs> what? Yeah, because otherwise, otherwise I'm at cross purposes. Yeah. I mean, it's something I was taking that goal card. I was trying to get, because you'll definitely get one private objective, which are the number of that color. So I definitely wanted to get all the blue ones to get numbers from that. And I want to make sure that he got nothing but ones. So his, so he ended up with a target score of, I think it was like 12. Wow. <laughs> I, that's amazing. And when you play the game, when you set it up, you, you first get the scorecards and then you dra- then you choose your window that you're going to play. So once, once you see what your goals are, you could be smart about choosing the window that, that has a lot of your color or, that has spaces with ones if your goal is to get lots of ones or whatever. Um, and that that would help. And you could also choose deliberately to pick a lower difficulty window that has a difficulty rating on there. I'm not sure. Well, yeah, but there's no fav- There's also no favor tokens. The, low, the, difficult, the lowest difficulty ones, I think, are fours. I think maybe there's a three. But having a, level, having a six difficulty window, they are, they are more difficult. Yeah. I think they're more difficult having played with them. I think they are. And you get no advantage now for having a more difficult window. So you may as well just pick yeah. the easier but one. But you could adjust that by having more or fewer tool cards also. I think 
They say use anywhere between two and five or one and five or something like that. I've been doing three every game. Just one tool card is extreme and five tools is very easy. Is it? I, yeah, I I've done really three because it. that's how many you have in the regular. Okay, yeah. But, and so <laughs> I I find the game, and even with my, I was playing wrong and making it easier myself, I find the game incredibly hard. I think I've played about a, 10 solo games or so. Yes. I have won one time. Yes. It is really hard, and I don't find that I get as many opportunities to do intelligent and additional games. Like with the other one, I can say, oh, I can use this tool with these dice to do this cool action. But with this one, there have been many times playing solo where I'm playing a game and I said, if I had access to this tool, I could do something really cool. But I don't have <laughs> access to this tool because unlike in the multiplayer, you often do not have access to the tools. So the mo- the major use of the tool cards in the solo is just to reduce the number of points from the target score. Yes, yeah. and there, there's some tool cards that are very useless um, because they they, they sort of help interact with the other players, and so you just want to buy those at some point just so that uh, you could spend the dice. Man, yeah, the, I, I I think I like my my variant. I'm gonna call it a variant, not a mistake. I think I like my variant better. Yeah, I'm starting to think that your variant was a better <laughs> version. But I'll tell you, the designer of the game has actually come onto BGG, and he's said that quote the solo game is a bit harder than I originally intended. <laughs> when I worked on the solo game, the tools were stronger. When playtesting, the tools were changed and streamlined, which made the solo game harder to beat. But it's definitely beatable. So he has a couple suggestions on how to make it easier. His first suggestion is to take two prime private objectives and choose only one at the end. Make the empty spaces worth only minus one, like in the multiplayer game, and use at least five tools to start. <laughs> at least five. At wow. least five tools That's, to start. Well, you know, I, I keep playing with three. Like, really? I keep playing the way I've been playing, and I, I lose. I, I don't just lose. I lose painfully. So. I, so I said I've won I one do game. Not like... right? The way I score it is I take the, the target score and I subtract mine and, and see how it, or I subtract the target score from mine. And I'm trying to basically just get a positive number. Doing it that sure. way, my highest score <laughs> has been a, a one. My lowest nice. score has been something like negative 50 or, or 57 nice. even, something like that. <laughs> Incredibly horrible. I, I kind of think that with all of these options – and your variant, which now makes it so that more often you will have the tools in more situations. Because theoretically, once it's unlocked, you'll have access to it for a long time and whenever you want to use it later on. It's just sort of random about when it'll come unlocked. So if you had five tools, empty spaces are worth only one, and you get to use the tools by taking dice from either the draft pool or the round tracker, I think with all of those, it becomes a bit better. But you still don't have the favor tokens being used. So I'd want it to be that you get one point for each favor token listed on your card in addition. So Mm -hmm. you just get six free points if you get a six difficulty window in addition to all those. But I think that the solo play rules as written, like I'm already having to put in like four variants for me to make this, (laughs) for me to make it fun. Yep. That reminds me, somebody did post a variant the other day, I think in the one-player guild. Um, go look for it if you're going to play this game. Not you specifically, Julius, people in general. I haven't tried it, but I did see that it was in there. Well, I mean, I, I just came up with it. my variant. Yep. 
I mean, I've come up already with yeah, my variant, <laughs> and I think I'm going to use. I think I'm going to use your variant for my variant for playing the game. And I think it'll be a lot more fun because really, the the biggest pain for me is the fact that I don't that that harder windows are harder without any benefit, and that tool cards primarily are useless mm-hmm. because I don't get to yep. do intelligent stuff with the tool cards. Yes, yeah, see, I, I, most of them end up so, getting used each game. And and you know, there's a strategy of when I use it and do I yeah, say for, do I wait for the good dice? Hmm? For good purpose? Are you using them for good purpose well, or are you just using them to get them out? Sometimes I use them to get them out, sometimes I'm using them for the benefit. And you know, there's some windows that you really just can only use to get them out of there. But there's some where the benefit is actually useful, like moving the dice around and flipping the dice. And those those I actually save and, and usually use them to my advantage. Right. So I think with five tool cards, that's enough options for interplay between yeah. those things that I think it would probably still be fun. And I think, you know, I think I would do if you maybe I would subtract the number of tool cards from your score. So the more you have, that also makes your score a little worse. And I think that, that if you did that, you say like minus one point per tool card, good. having five tool cards is going to get you a lot more points than it's going to cost you. That sounds good. Although it should probably be between three and seven tool cards instead of one and five. It, it's a hard game. It just it just is. I don't mind that it's so hard. It is a challenge to get better at it to the point where I could beat it. It's impossible. <laughs> I've done it once. It's, you, you just cannot <laughs> beat the target once. score. It's be, you're right. It's it's possible, but you have to get. It, it's it's not fun for me to beat the target score. It's more fun for me to in, for a game like this. It's more fun mm-hmm. for me to try and beat my score, my high scores, than not. Wow. That's that's more fun for me, I think. And you know, I'm just not a fan. The solo play rules is written. I'm just not a fan of. Okay, would you recommend the game for solo play then? doesn't sound like you would but i'm not sure with with a bunch of variants with a bunch of variants yeah actually because all these variants the the variant that you're playing with i've never tried it before but i'm at this right now i'm actually pretty excited to go try it because i've i've done things like just ignore the restrictions on tool cards Mm -hmm. and just i get one free use of tool cards whenever i want i just have to discard a die and, and it's not restricted. And that's more fun to me. So having it be your variant, which is a, a sort of midway point between those, that sounds good. So I think that coming into it, I think that there's a fun game in there, but I think you're going to need a variant. And I think the fact that the designer is himself already recommending a variant probably speaks towards ignore the solo play rules and, and play a, a better version of the solo play rules. Yep. You know, I'm sure at some point they'll come out with an expansion for this game with, with more tools and more windows and maybe an updated solo variant. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. That, might, that would probably be nice if they did. And I definitely recommend it. I definitely recommend it for multiplayer. I thought it was super fun for multiplayer. But yeah, as I was saying, I really recommend it for playing multiplayer. I think it's a great game. This is, you know, this is one that both me and my wife have been having a lot of fun with, so... I really recommend it. For yeah, I, I do too. I, I played it with my son. We had fun. I've heard it is different with more players. One, it gets a lot slower because there's more dice and more drafting, but also more interesting. But I, I you know, I can't actually comment on it. I'm just passing that on. I, and I recommend the game for solo. Yep. 
All right, so that's Sagrada. Awesome. Woo! Great history segment too, Albert. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening.